asking him to be a spastic quadriplegic with cerebral palsy. Rick's story is absolutely amazing, but what moves me is how their story illustrates God's grace for us. Rick is intelligent, but he's confined to a wheelchair with severe physical limitations. One day he told his dad that he'd like to run a five-mile benefit race. And so Dick agreed, and he pushed his son all five miles, and they finished uh, next to last. Well, that race began an incredible journey for them with astonishing accomplishments. Uh, here's just a few. 70 marathons together, 30 of which were in Boston. Um, in 45 consecutive days, this uh, father and son team biked and ran 3,735 miles across the United States. They have run 247 triathlons, six of which were the Ironman uh, competition, at least the distance of an Ironman competition, equaling 2.4 miles of swimming, 112 miles of bike riding, and 26.2 miles of running, all without a break. Their best time was a bit under 14 hours. Um, while they compete in the Ironman triathlons, Dick pulls his son in a boat as he's swimming, and there's a bungee attached to him that's attached to the boat as he pulls his son. Um, they ride a special two-seat bicycle together, and Dick pushes his son in a customized running chair All of this for 140.6 miles. Now, when they transfer from swimming to the bike riding, he goes and he picks his son up, and he carries him the whole way through. And you see him walking through the crowds of people, and then he sets him down on the bike, and he gets on behind the bike, and he starts to ride with his power behind his son who is in front with a look of pure joy and elation on his face. When they come to the running part, they transfer him to this running chair, and he pushes him from behind. Now, it's moving because of the love and determination of this father that he has for his son. It's moving because of the admiration that the son has for his father and for running. You see, Rick can't run. He can't do a lot of things physically, but his loving dad can. Dick's determination and drive has allowed his son to experience things he otherwise could never have experienced. The loving power of this father has changed the life of the son. Rick said to his his father, Dad, when I'm running, it feels like I'm not handicapped. He runs because of his dad, and his dad runs because he loves his son. You should see the joy, and maybe some of you have seen the YouTube video, on his face when he's running. This is a picture of grace. We were spiritually helpless until a loving father extended us powerful grace and changed our lives. He he accomplished for us what we could not otherwise do for ourselves. He carries us along. He gives us strength when we need it the most. He gives us hope for a bright future. He prospers us. And all along the way, he demonstrates the glory of his kindness and grace and power in our lives. Grace affects us. 
Uh, Rick said one time, the thing I'd most like is for my dad to sit in the chair and I would push him for once. Because of the lavish love of the father poured into his son, the son desires to do what? Give back to his dad. Isn't this a phenomenal picture of God's grace in our lives motivating us just to live for him? to give back to him. This is what God did for us. Grace became human and moved in next door. Grace is God's being kind to us. It's unearned. It's a gift. It's it's not like a Friday paycheck. It's more like uh, when a wife receives flowers simply because her husband desires to express his love and affection. Jesus is God's expression of grace. Look at verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's labeled the incarnation. In, carnis, or flesh, shun, an action or state. The incarnation is the action of the word becoming flesh. The word became real muscle and bones and moved next door to us. The Son of God added humanity to his deity, one person with two distinct natures, 100% God, 100% man. Now, our culture loves superheroes, and they all have weaknesses, their own weaknesses, but they all sort of discover or come into their power and into their incredible strengths. However, in the gospel, it's interesting that an omnipotent and sovereign word who has no weakness takes on limitations of human form. An old-time scholar said, the Son of God stooped so low as to take upon himself that flesh subject to so many miseries. Philippians 2.6 expresses, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Now, Isaiah prophesied many years before that the virgin uh, would have a son and that they would call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. His humanity is unquestionable. Paul said Jesus was born of a woman and that he descended from David according to the flesh. The writer of Hebrews said he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people, to make sacrifice, atoning sacrifice. God became flesh like you. And like me. And he dwelled among us. He literally tabernacled among us. We'll get to that in a little bit. He became the high priest that would offer himself as the sacrifice, as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. What a man Jesus Christ is. Read about Jesus in the New Testament and see that he became hungry, that he enjoyed food and drink, that he slept because he got tired. He felt physical and emotional pain. Well, what is this idea of tabernacling? Um, He dwelt among us. He literally pitched a tent here. Uh, John's choice of words is significant because if you go back to Exodus 25, 8, and 9, this is what God says. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, 
exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. God dwelt in the tabernacle among his people. Later in Exodus 33, 7, we learn that God's glory filled the tabernacle, filled this tent. Uh, Exodus 40, 34, and 35, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of God among his people in a tent. Now jump ahead thousands of years to verse 14. And the word became flesh and literally tabernacled among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. What once dwelt in a tent, now dwelt physically in human form, in a body as a man among his people. Jesus is the true living tabernacle, and through his spirit that he sent when he left, which dwells in us, we become the tabernacle because God is in us. Verse 14 says, We have seen his glory. Well, John and the other apostles and the other disciples were eyewitnesses of this account. They saw the glory of the Father in the person of Jesus Christ. They saw the light of his perfection, the brightness of his character and worth, the severity and intensity of his nature. They saw God's glory made visible in Jesus John said in 14, glory as of the only son. This word only means that he's exclusive. He's unique. He is one of a kind. There is none like Jesus. He is the only son. In 1 John 4, 9, John wrote, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son, same word, into the world so that we might live through him. The glory of Jesus Christ is his supremacy over all things, is his uniqueness. He is one of a kind. He is also glorious because he is full of grace and truth. Infinite grace is contained in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul said, the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Jesus is bursting at the seams with grace and truth. He is overflowing what John Calvin called an inexhaustible fountain of grace and truth. It just keeps pouring out. The kindness and benevolence of God knows no end. Jesus is also full of truth. He is a flood of truth, the prime reality. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the truth. He told Pilate in the last moments of his life, I came into the world to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. In a culture where we're overrun with deceit, isn't it true that we just need some more truth? We just need truth. Just tell us the truth. We want to know reality. One of our neighbors stopped in the other day bearing gifts, which is always nice when a neighbor does that. Brings us tomatoes and I forget what else it was, but some things from her garden. And do you know what she said to us? She said, 
If you need anything, let us know. Now, that's a nice thing to say. They're just across the street. Good neighbors are good because they're close and they're willing to help. God came close to help. Grace became a man and moved next door. Because of his humanity, Jesus understands everything that you're going through. Your life, your struggles. Jesus is an expert at hard knocks. Hebrews 4.15 says he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses as one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. As one of us, Jesus understands. He understands it all. He took on the frailties of human flesh and subjected himself to every temptation, but never failed. He knows struggle. He knows pain. Yet he secured eternal life for you because through his limitation, through his temptations, he never sinned. He stayed faithful to God. Hebrews 4.16 continues, Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because of what Jesus Christ did, we can confidently approach the throne of grace and receive the grace and mercy just at the right time. Exactly in the right amounts that we need. His grace is there. Do you need grace right now? You feeling beat up? He has enough for you. He has enough. Jesus outranks everything. John the Baptist was sent by God to bear witness about Jesus. And in a sort of parenthetical statement in verse uh, 15, he, he uh, has a quote there. John the Apostle writes a quote from John the Baptist. He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, you're like, well, that doesn't... John was born before Jesus. The ministry of John started before Jesus. So why does Jesus outrank John? Well, his quote says it all. Because he was before me. I thought John was born first. So what does that mean? Jesus always was before John. He created John as the eternal God and therefore lies his supremacy. Jesus always was. We learned that from the first bit of, of this passage. And so when he says he was before me, he's saying he is eternal. He is God. Have any of you played Rook before? Any Rook players? Heart, not one. Oh, my goodness. You got to get this game. All right. This isn't even going to make sense now. I thought this was like a layup. You'd all know what I'm talking about. Like two people will get this analogy. Anyway. I just learned that Rook, to tell you a little bit about the game, it was nicknamed Missionary Poker because in 1906, Parker Brothers um, introduced Rook as an alternative card game for conservative Christians who objected to face cards because of their use in gambling. So Rook, Missionary Poker, hey, whatever. Anyway, if you are playing four-player Rook and you pick up your hand and you recognize that you have a great hand, it's a bidding game, so you bid on a certain amount of cards in a kitty, and you recognize you have a good hand, so you bid and you win the kitty, and then you have to discard some cards because you pick some up, and you recognize, oh my goodness, I have the Rook and all the highest trump. Just lay the hand down. You don't even need to play it out 
by cards, just lay it all down because you've just dominated and beat everybody. Nobody's going to touch you. So just lay it down. Jesus trumps everything. He is matchless and absolute. He always outranks, transcends, and prevails. There is nothing in creation that is more beautiful, more powerful, more significant, or more enjoyable than Jesus Christ. Verse 16, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The grace of Jesus is steady and sufficient. It's it's never-ending, and it's exactly what is needed. Verse 14 says Jesus is full of grace and truth. And verse 16 reveals the magnitude of grace flowing from his fullness. If anyone understands flooding, it's Noah and people from Mannheim. Amen? (laughs) Don't miss the metaphor. Jesus is brimming with grace. He's flooding our lives with his torrential kindness. The phrase grace upon grace, when I've read that in the past, it's confused me a bit, and I didn't really know what that meant. It seemed awkward in the Greek. It seemed awkward in English, and it confused me. So what does verse 16 mean? Well, John uses a Greek preposition, ante. It can mean different things, but it means for or in the place of in a lot of, of places. All right, for or in the place of. So Jesus uses auntie in Matthew 5, 38 when quoting the Old Testament. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. He's using, using that word. An eye in the place of an eye. So what does it mean to have grace in the place of grace? It just seems kind of weird. All right, have you ever been at a buffet And you're just mounding your plate with food. Boom, boom. And you look down the line and you see, oh no, my favorite food is dwindling. There's not much in the pan. And you're like, I hope that doesn't run out by the time I get down there. And you finally get down there. And just before the server comes out and brings this heaping hot loaded pan of food and dumps it right before you. You're the first to grab the handle. You put it on your plate. It's just growing. I love buffets. All right? That's the idea of grace upon grace. William Hendrickson said, one manifestation of the unmerited favor of God in Christ is hardly gone when another one arrives Hence, grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. It just keeps coming for us. He just keeps pouring it out. Paul uses phrases like abundance of grace and riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. God is wealthy in grace. He's filthy rich. He's in the like hyper upper class of grace. Paul tells us that he lavished grace upon us. He gives us excessive amounts. And my grandma good did this. It was like, may I get you something else to eat? No, grandma, I'm good for right now. Are you sure you don't want me? I can make you a sandwich. No, grandma, I'm full. I don't, I don't really want anything. How about a turkey dinner? Do, do you want me to kill the fatted calf and to roast a pig? It's like, Grandma, Grandma. All right. 
Abundant grace flows from the kindness of God's heart. Paul wrote to the Ephesians that salvation was to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Don't miss that. The riches of his grace are immeasurable. How many steps would it take you to walk around the universe six trillion times? You just can't measure that. I'm sure there's a number that some math guy would be like, oh, you can measure that. But you just can't measure it. Neither can you measure God's infinite grace. Something powerful and influential as to pay off an infinite debt cannot be measured. There is simply no end to the grace of God for those who are in Christ because from his treasuries of grace, he gives you grace upon grace. Now, some object to grace and they say, what are you doing? You have to tell people to obey. By telling them they can't lose God's favor, you're encouraging them to sin. Just do whatever you want then, right? What's going to keep people from indulging in sin with this message of grace? To which I would respond, you don't understand the nature of grace and what it does what God does through grace. Paul dealt with this exact question in Romans 6, 1 and 2. And his answer is extraordinary. He asks, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Live it up because grace is good, right? And so if I sin all this much, then God's grace comes in and covers all that. He gets more glory. I'm just going to live in sin. That's what Paul's asking. This is how he answers it. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Because God made us a new creation. Our old self died on the cross with Christ. Grace killed the old you and sin's power over you. And now you are new. You are transformed. You have a new heart. You have new desires. You have new passions. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He changes you so you want something new to lavishly outpour what you never desired before. To think God's kindness motivates people to keep sinning is a total misunderstanding of being born again, of regeneration, what it means to be saved and the nature and effect of grace. Of course we continue in sin, we're imperfect but it no longer defines us. We are now children of God under new leadership with a new name. We are God's kids because of Christ. Paul said that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. And so if you you understand what Paul was saying, very simple, God is kind to you, meant to lead you to repent and turn from your sin and hate it. Um, grace isn't a license to sin. It's our motivation and power to confront, avoid, and overcome sin. That's the effect of grace in our lives. Friends, bask in God's grace. Take the grace. Praise it. Cherish it. Revel in it. Enjoy it. Soak it up and allow it to drive you to live blamelessly. We need the gospel Not a message of try harder, be better, do more, and then God will like you. 
then God will accept you. That's not good news. The gospel is all about what Jesus has done and what he will do. Grace does for us what the law simply can't do. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses on Mount Sinai, but God sent grace and truth to come through Jesus Christ. Jesus came and does what the law can't do. Now the law is really good, and it just so happens that people misuse the law. All right, some people think that by living a good life, they can earn heaven. That's legalism or earning favor from God by following certain rules. And some of us are just natural. I'm, I'm prone to that. Just follow the rules, man, then God will accept you. And that is legalism and that is evil. Other people rightly think that salvation is by grace, but then wrongly think they can do whatever they want because they're covered under grace. That we call antinomianism, or living however you want, as long as you believe in Jesus, you're covered. Both legalism and antinomianism are equally wrong. The law is not to be abused. It can't save us. Only Jesus can do that, but it serves a magnificent purpose. Three purposes of the law. The law defines sin, the law restrains sin, and the law defines holiness. Number one, the law defines sin. The law tells us what God doesn't want us to do. Don't do this. This is breaking God's standard of holiness. And so he outlines that, and that's really helpful to us because then we can understand what he doesn't want us to do. You shall have no other gods before me. So we know loving and serving anything more than God is out of bounds. It's breaking his rules. The law helps us recognize and diagnose our problem. Number two, the law restrains sin. The law doesn't change our hearts, but it brings a certain amount of earthly justice. And I think to a certain extent, we can all say justice is refreshing. We want to see justice. We love justice. The law instills fear in people. It helps keep societal order. If you put a government sign by the White House lawn... Do not walk on the grass or a sniper will shoot you. I think it's probably likely that a lot of people will consider whether to walk on the grass. I don't think it's a good idea if I step on the grass. Number three, the law defines holiness. Excuse me. The law tells us how God wants us to live. The law helps us understand God's design for life. Love God with everything that you have. Love other people as yourself, a simple definition of how God wants us to live. R.C. Sproul is a pastor and an author. I recommend his books. Get them, read them. He said, by studying or meditating on the law of God, we attend the school of righteousness. School of righteousness, just teaching us what a righteous life looks like. The law helpfully defines sin, restrains sin, and defines holiness. It exposes our desperate need of grace, and it directs us to Jesus, who is grace, and Jesus directs us to the law as the affectionate response in following him. What a joyful Christian looks like is outlined in the law, and Jesus points us back to that. Samuel Bolton, he was a 17th century pastor and theologian, he said this, The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. 
The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. Never try to earn God's acceptance by doing better and trying harder. God already accepts you by grace through faith in Christ. You are as accepted in Christ as you will ever be. And so from that acceptance and from your new identity in Christ flows obedience and law-keeping. You don't keep the law so that God will love you. It just doesn't work that way. True obedience comes from a heart that is loved, not a heart that works to be loved. The doing should always come out of the being. Aren't you great, grateful that grace came to us? Otherwise, we wouldn't know God. Jesus makes God and grace visible and known. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And I ask the question, has anyone ever seen God? Is that biblical, John, what you're writing? Well, in Genesis 32, verse 30, Jacob said, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Exodus 33, 11 says that Moses spoke with God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Well, it sounds like at least Jacob and Moses saw God. So, John, what are you, what are you saying here? Well, in Exodus thirty-three twenty, God said directly to Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Well, God passes by Moses, and Moses sees God's back, which is a veiled glory, but God said, my face shall not be seen. So did they see God? When the Bible says face to face, I don't think it's referring to the full-orbed manifestation of God's glory, only an eclipsed glory. I think the emphasis of the phrase face to face is closeness, nearness, Moses and God were face to face as a man speaks to his friend. God doesn't have a face. That's figurative language in the scripture. The point is relational closeness. And so John is accurate. No one has ever seen God, the full manifestation of his glory, because his glory is dangerously transcendent, yet John is accurate to say Jesus has made the Father known. We see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. John uses a really interesting word, it's exegesata, where we get the word exegetical, to explain or describe something. Jesus Christ is the explanation of the only God, the unique and distinct and exclusive, the one-of-a-kind God, the same word used in verse 14. And Jesus is qualified to make that declaration to exegete, to be an exegete of God, because he is at the Father's side. He is the one in the Father's bosom, so to speak, his chest. He's close, he's personal, in a position of honor. And Jesus said in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Look to Jesus Christ. Look to Jesus Christ and see the glory of God. Now, how do we apply all of this? Well, you have to think hard if you really want to apply something. So don't turn your minds off. Think through this. I think the ultimate application of learning these truths about Jesus Christ from John is to joyfully believe. Believe. 
You just don't have to go do stuff. Just believe. Rest in Him. Put your faith in Him. Trust in Him. But to make it even more relevant, here are some additional things that you can think about in the application of these texts. One, number one, freedom. Enjoy the liberty of God's grace. Enjoy it. Have fun being free. Lay your burdens down. I'm gonna lay down my burdens down by the riverside, down by the riverside. Lay them down. Put them down. Don't carry the weight of your sin, guilt, and shame. It's no fun. (laughs) It's no fun. Allow Jesus to carry it all for you. Freedom refreshes our souls. We're not freed from the battle. We're still in the middle of the battle. We're still engaged every day. But we fight as free men and women. Liberated. We already are. So fight like one. Enjoy your freedom. Number two, humility. People who enjoy God's kindness towards them are humble people. It's kind of hard to live for yourself when you know how much God has done for you. All right, allow grace to humble you. Number three, graciousness. If you've been given $6 trillion, will you care that your neighbor owes you $50? If so, you're sick. You're sick. Absolutely, there are times to courageously and lovingly deal with wrongs against you. You can't let them all go. You've got to step up and at the right time, by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, defend justice and the truth. But God does want us to overlook all kinds of offenses against us and give grace. Extend grace to people. The Apostle Peter said, Love covers a multitude of sins. Let love and grace pour from you as God dumps it lavishly on you. Allow it to spill out over into other people who are around you. Number four, community. Now, when I say community, I'm not talking about Mannheim. Uh, I'm talking about knowing people deeply and allowing people to know you deeply. Grace gives you courage and strength to share yourself with others, to put yourself out there. So many people put walls up. They avoid relationships. They avoid getting close to people for several reasons, fear, pride, and selfishness. That just shuts intimacy with people down. When we know and experience God's lavish love for us, why not risk in the confidence that God has grace for you? You can put yourself out there. If you don't have at least a few people surrounding you, close to you, that you can open up to about your spiritual struggles, you are not growing spiritually like you could be. End of story. Um, Community can catapult your spiritual life. We're wired for community. We were made for relationship. If you go back a bunch of weeks to God making man and what we were made for was to be relationally intimate with God the Father and the Trinity. And he also made us to relate to one another. And so when that need is not felt and we're not expressing our struggles with each other, we're missing. And we will feel that missing. Man, I just thought people are lonely. There's a lot of lonely people. I think Christine and I were talking about that. Men, when was the last time you talked openly about your spiritual condition with other men? Laid it out there, honestly. 
When was the last time you did that? Women, when was the last time you sat down, maybe over coffee with some girlfriends, and you just laid it out? This is where I'm at. I'm struggling. And you were real. Who really knows you? Do you welcome rebuke from someone? Who is that person that can come to you to say, you know, something just doesn't smell right, and you know I love you, and that's why I'm saying something. Who, who do you have that relationship with? Who helps you stay on course? All right, grace will give you the courage and the strength to put yourself out there for loving community. We are called in Scripture to bear one another's burdens. Grace allows us to do that. God tells us to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we may be healed because the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Grace helps you to do that. I'm really struggling with this. Would you pray with me so I can see victory and the power of that righteous person praying in your life goes to work and you can see healing and victory come. Some of you may never have confessed your sin ever to anybody. You don't have friends like that. You just have surface level friendships, okay? And I understand that. I understand that. Um, You might be too scared to share and I understand that. But just recognize that the more you shut down, the less people know about you. They can't pray for what they don't know. And if they're not praying for those things that are deeply um, important in your life, then healing and restoration is not coming for you probably, at least not at the level that it could. Are you really determined to grow spiritually? Because if, if you say Jesus is the most important thing in your life, if you come to Jerusalem church saying this is a priority of mine because I am on a Sunday morning when I could be sleeping in here, then you need to take very seriously who do you know that's sharpening you? How close are you to people? Who knows you? Who can you lay it out and know they're gonna love me anyway? And I'll say this to the guys. If you don't have anybody I will fill in. I will be a person for you. I wonder, our elders, they probably would say, yeah, I'll be that for you. We'll guard, we'll guard that and not tell anybody about it. You know, we'll work that out. Who knows you? Who knows you? Um, allow people, that's my challenge to you, allow grace to drive you to allow people to know you. Number five, joy. Grace activates deep, indestructible joy. You can't beat it down. Grace just powers people to be so extremely happy. Not without struggle. Never without struggle. But grace does it. Grace wins. I wonder how many of us are like Rick, overjoyed to be experiencing the grace of his father. Dad, when I'm running with you, It feels like I'm not handicapped. Let's pray. God, thank you for your tremendous grace. I feel like, Spirit, I feel like you've moved here. I feel like you've challenged your people. You've challenged me, God, as I've grown lazy in accountability and sharing myself. It's so easy to do, God, and so I just pray that grace motivates us to be bold in our face, that we can boast in our weaknesses, saying, I have been bruised, broken, beaten down, but God's grace is real, and he has picked me up, and I keep moving forward because the Spirit is at work in me. 
I pray that that is the tenacious attitude of the people of Jerusalem, that they would be so soaked in grace, so flooded with grace, that they are happy, that they are humble, that they are transparent, that they enjoy their freedom, that they are living life to the fullest, God, because of the great mercy and kindness and favor you have poured into our lives. Help us with this, God. We need it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.